Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So we're deep into our series on Acts. We're in the 20s now, and this series is going to be over in the next few months. be over before we know it. Our series is God's kingdom mission for the church. We've been looking at how in the book of Acts, Jesus continues his ministry through his people, through his church. And last week we were in chapter 19, we looked at the whole chapter and saw that the kingdom of God was drawing near in Ephesus and there were a number of things that happened as the power of the gospel of the kingdom, the presence of the Holy Spirit shook Ephesus and the powers of Ephesus gave us a window into what happens when the power of God and the word of God sounds forth in a particular region. And today we're going to look at chapter 20. There's 38 verses in it, but we're going to zero in on verses 17 through 38. And this is a super interesting chapter, but for the sake of time, we're just kind of honing in on a particular part of each chapter from here on out. But so that we have an idea of what's going on here, Paul in chapter 20 is leaving Ephesus and he's moving into Macedonia and Greece in chapters 1 through 6. And then verses yeah, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 7 through 16. There's a fascinating story here that happens. It's Paul is preaching, and the church is worshiping and listening to the word of God and celebrating communion and sharing a meal together deep into the night. And this young man named Eutychus actually falls from a third-story window and dies. We're not going to look at that, but I'm just summarizing. And so Paul in the tradition of Jesus, and Elijah goes and picks him up and embraces him, and his breath re-enters him, and he's raised from the dead. And so the text is showing us that, like Jesus, the resurrection power continues through his people, through his apostles. And now that brings us to verses 17 and following. And what we're going to be looking at here, this is a farewell address that the apostle Paul is giving He's giving this address to the Ephesian leaders, as we're going to see in a minute. And the essence of his message in this farewell address is stay true to Jesus. Stay true to Christ and his word. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, Lord, we do. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, that it transforms us. It's planted deep within us and brings forth great fruit. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us, to show us all things about Jesus in the word of God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in a sense, this is Paul's pastoral testament. He's looking, as we'll see in a minute, he's calling the Ephesian elders to travel about 30 miles to come meet him in this port city of Miletus. And he knows that his time is short. 
And so he's looking at these elders and he's exhorting them. He's challenging them. He's saying, my time is limited. I'm going to be going to Rome where I'll die for the gospel. And so you are being entrusted with the care of the church in Ephesus and in this region. This is powerful. These are his last words to these particular people. So I want us to think about that, the weight of that, the gravity. If you knew, friends, that your life would be ending in a few months, somehow you knew it, let me just ask you, what would you say and to whom would you say it? If you just knew you had three or four months left, who would you want to talk to and what would you want to say to them? That is precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's finishing his third and final missionary journey. He's entering that straightaway journey to Rome where he'll be imprisoned. And we know from church history that he was martyred there. So let's look at what Paul is saying in this farewell address. Look at verses 17 through 18. We'll read it again in sections here. And the first thing that Paul is saying is found in verses 17 through 18. Let's read it together. From Miletus, Paul sent a message to Ephesus, asking the elders of the church to meet him. When they came to him, he said to them, and then we'll read what he says, but I want to talk about the first thing here that Paul is doing, and that is he's empowering the leaders, the elders at Ephesus, by gathering them together in this town about 30 miles south of Ephesus, He's giving them a message. He's giving them information, and he's empowering them and commissioning them to serve as leaders for the church there in the city and eventually the region. It's a beautiful thing. Think about it. In the ancient world, they weren't able to just hop in some kind of transportation. They had to walk 30 miles to meet Paul. Probably took them about three days, depending on how fast their pace was. And so they are excited, they're enthusiastic to go and meet with Paul. He's called these elders, these leaders, these overseers, and they're called by different names, sometimes elders, sometimes overseers, and the point is they're shepherds of the flock. And he has gathered around him everywhere he goes a team, doesn't he? Paul is not out on his own doing the apostolic work. He's always gathering other leaders, identifying them, raising them up, discipling them. And so these are some of the leaders that he had helped raise up with his team on a previous visit to Ephesus. And what's interesting in the words that we're going to look at here, it parallels a lot of Paul's letters. So we know from 1 Timothy 3 that these men that he's calling to himself were men of good reputation, that the church had put them forward and Paul had said, you are men with a good reputation, manage your households well, and you're going to share the leadership of the church. And so, friends, this is beautiful. Even in these opening verses here, there is a strong relational connection between Paul and these leaders. And it's a model for us. It's the glue of the kingdom. He's asked them to travel and meet with him and talk. And look at verses 18 through 21. It's a second thing that we see Paul saying in his farewell address, the second part of verse 18 there. He said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the entire 
time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. So a second thing we see here is Paul modeling humble service and helpful teaching. Paul is saying to the elders, you've been able to watch me. You have seen how I've lived, how I embodied the message that I'm preaching. You know me. It's what he's saying to them. You guys know me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so that's what he's saying again here to the Ephesian elders. I'm doing everything I've got to follow Jesus faithfully. The way that he spoke, the way that he ministered, the way that he loved, the way that he served. And he does it in a particular way. Look at verse 19. How is Paul highlighting what he does, he serves the Lord how? What are the two things here? With humility and with tears. He's clothed with humility, just like John the Baptist said. Paul says the same thing. Christ must increase, I must decrease. What a message for the church today. Just think if the church leaned into that a little bit. If our, lead, if our leaders served with humility and with tears. Christ, you must increase, I must decrease. What's his tears business here? What do you think that is? He cared. We know from other places and the Corinthian letters that he would stay up all night, that he wept over the people. He was, as we'll see in a minute, filled with a spirit that was 24-7. Care, love. The end of that, verse 21, Paul is kind of encapsulating his message. What is it? Again, it's kind of these twofold things. His message is about what at verse 21? Repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus. Two sides of the same gospel coin, isn't it? He's announcing to them the presence, the gospel of the kingdom. Christ is here to save through the preaching of the word, and now it calls for life change. It's time to do a 180 and turn toward God and put faith in his son. Verses 22 through 25 is a third thing in Paul's farewell address. Let's read it. And now, as a captive to the spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will ever see my face again. We're going to see their response to that, but what Paul is saying in these verses, 22 to 25, is the third thing. 
He's finishing his course and he's preparing others, basically for his absence. Paul senses there's danger ahead. The Holy Spirit speaking to him personally, but we also know through prophets, we've seen it multiple places, Acts 11, Acts 13, there were people that were hearing from the Lord and giving warnings oftentimes to Paul. So he is prepped. He knows that he's going to die sooner than later for the gospel. And he's modeling courage, isn't he? Verse 22. It's unusual language, isn't it? You ever thought about what it might mean to be a captive to the Holy Spirit? Isn't that interesting? Then the Spirit's mentioned again, the Holy Spirit speaking to me, testifies to me. Friends, again, Paul is not just meant to be some kind of lofty person that we look at through the history of the church. This guy was a sinner just like us. He was a Christ hater more than us. And now here he is a captive to the Holy Spirit. What would that be like if we were captive? We were captivated by the Holy Spirit. He had full possession of us. We were bond slaves of Christ. That's what Paul is getting at here. My life is not my own. And even some of the language that he's using here, that he values Christ even more than his life, made me think of John Wimber this week, the founder of the Vineyard, one of the founding leaders. And he said, all of us, all Christians, are like change in the Lord's pocket, like coins in the Lord's pocket, and he gets to choose how he's going to spend us. It's what we are. Are you willing to let the Lord spend and invest you, invest you however he chooses? Are we wanting to be captives of the Holy Spirit? A fourth thing here. It's a rich passage, isn't it? Find this rich. I've just been enjoying it, getting lost in it this week. Verses 26 through 27, another thing that he's saying. And again, it's helpful to picture in our minds. He's saying this to these Ephesian elders and leaders. Look at verse 26. He says, therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm not responsible for the blood of any of you. We'll look at what that means. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So Paul here is saying, he's speaking of his innocence and of his courage. Paul has his mind filled with the images of the Old Testament. And this is one of those moments where he's thinking about the prophet Ezekiel as a watchman on the wall. In Ezekiel 33, it talks about it. And Ezekiel looks at the people of God and he says, I've faithfully spoken the word of the Lord to you. Now it's up to you to respond to it or ignore it. And your blood be on your own hands. Your own blood guilt be on you if you don't listen to me. That's what Paul is saying here. Like the prophet Ezekiel, he's saying, I've been a vigilant watchman. I'm speaking the truth to you even when it's hard. Please listen to me. Please use this as a model for your people. Be vigilant and watch over them. This is a beautiful phrase in the whole book of Acts, isn't it? Look, verse 27. I did not shrink. I did not hesitate to declare what? What's it say here, church? The whole purpose of God. Let's say that together. The whole purpose of God. 
if the church, if we would just practice this, it could solve a lot of problems. The church likes to soundbite certain things and cherry pick and pull a piece from here or a piece from here. And if we would give ourselves to reading, to praying, to studying, to obeying the whole counsel of God. If you weren't here when Derek Morphew was here, that's what he was talking about. The kingdom of God promised from Genesis to Revelation. That is what Paul is getting at here. He's actually getting at Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament and then the scripture that comes later. It's the entire redemptive plan of God laid out in scripture. From the promised Messiah stemming from creation to the coming of Jesus, his incarnation, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, his return, that is what Paul is getting at here, the whole counsel of God. And he's warning them that elements of this, certain things may offend some people. But he's saying that we must proclaim the whole counsel of God. Let me just ask all saints, do we want to be a church where we proclaim the whole counsel of God here? Is that something that you're in for? I I want to be in. It's why we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, because it actually requires of us to not neglect or skirt around certain things. We have to see the whole counsel of God and attend to it even when it gets difficult. Even when culture is shouting the opposite message, we have to be faithful to the whole counsel of God. And that's a lifelong project, isn't it? To learn more and more about the truths of Scripture. Look at 28 through 32. This is really the heart of the passage. He's going to talk about guarding the believers and trusting God's grace. Look at 28 through 32. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after I have gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some, even from your own group, will come distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. So what Paul is talking about here is guarding or protecting fellow believers and trusting the grace of God. He uses all kinds of language here, doesn't he? At verse 28, keep watch. At verse 31, be alert. Then he says something beautiful about the church here, the price that God has paid for his people. The blood of his own son was shed to redeem the church. So Paul is reminding the elders, because they're going to be dealing with some problematic people and situations, the Lord loves the church. He loves his people so much 
that the blood of his own son was shed. Now, I don't know about you, but this is, uh, gets my attention. Sobering. Anybody else here? Paul is talking about savage wolves from the inside and the outside. So I want to sit with this for a minute. These are wolves that attack the flock, he says at verse 29. They're wolves that distort the truth. So they're cunning. They're deceptive. They look like sheep. But if you peel that back, it's actually a wolf inside. And so Paul is speaking to the leaders, the elders at Ephesus, but he's also speaking to our elders and to our leaders and to our pastors and to our staff and frankly to our group leaders, anyone who's called to watch over other Christians. This is not policing. It's not us coming in and saying, don't do that. This is a love and humble and tearful thing that Paul is talking about. Looking over the church, looking over your group and saying, I love these people. Yes, at times they drive me crazy, but I love them. This is family. So I want to protect them. That's what Paul is getting at here. And he's alerting them telling them that it's going to be necessary to use the plumb line of Scripture to evaluate and assess what people say, what they teach. I read this quote this week about false teachers, and listen to this. I thought it was really helpful. This is N.T. Wright, Anglican evangelical theologian. He says this, false teaching, heresies, don't come by straightforward denial. Most of the church would see right through that for what it really is. Heresies happen when one element that may even be important but isn't fully central looms so large that people can't help talking about it, fixating on it, debating different views on it as if it were the only thing that mattered. Do you hear that? Again, the whole counsel of God is important. We don't know what Paul was addressing here. We can have ideas and we can look at later church history of what was going on in Ephesus. We know there were groups that moved into Gnosticism, a secret knowledge and problems with the body and the material world and these things, but we don't know exactly what he was addressing. In his letter to Colossians, he talks about the Judaizers, these people that were requiring people to become Jewish first in order to be Christ followers. And we saw in Acts 15 that the council said, no, you you come to Christ. If you choose to hold on to your traditions and all, that's fine, but we don't mandate that. So friends, I just want us to think. Think about your own life. Think about the people around you. Think about what culture is trying to leak into the church that Paul might want us to be vigilant and watchful over. I'm sure that it's coming to mind, isn't it? Several things. This week I had three things come to mind that I think can be the work of wolves.
It looks sheep-like, but once you get in there and dig around, you find out that it's not the whole counsel of God. It's not the gospel of grace. It's not the full counsel. And the first is a distorted, what I call a distorted and new covenant theology. Now, we know new covenant theology is a good thing, isn't it? Paul talks about it at length in his letters, especially 2 Corinthians 3. But it becomes almost an exaggerated central thing, just like N.T. Wright said. It all becomes about new covenant. And you start talking about new covenant and grace and not the need for repentance anymore because Christ has taken care of that. And when we read the full counsel of Scripture, even up to the book of Revelation, Christ is calling the church to repent. So the idea that we're new covenant people and we leave any kind of repentance behind and there's an exaggerated grace, which Paul also talks about, it becomes a problem. And frankly, this distorted new covenant theology is nothing new. If you look in the second and third century, there's a a heresy called Arianism, And it basically was an exaggerated new covenant theology that would pit the New Testament against the Old Testament. And so, friends, we want to be vigilant. Are we new covenant people? You bet. But we want to have the whole counsel of God in our mind, and we want to keep that in its proper place. A second thing is this various, there's multi-prongs to it, but social justice movements. If you'll let me here for a moment, this one is really pressing and knocking on the door regularly. I like to say that biblical justice is what we're after. We're not after the social justice that's mandated by culture. We are after biblical justice. God thought of this long before any of these cultural critics or movements. Amen? But think about it for a moment. Bear with me here. Gender, race, sexuality. Gender, race, sexuality. I think the enemy wants to take these interesting and helpful conversations and make them primary in the church. And it eventually supplants the gospel of the kingdom. And so as leaders in the church, we watch carefully for this. Are we for biblical justice? You bet. Are we for social justice coming into the church and having us fixate on gender race, and sexuality, how do you answer that? No. The aim is to divert our full attention from Christ and from what I call creedal Christianity, the main and plain of Scripture, and to get us to fixate on gender, race, and sexuality. I read something. I want to illustrate this. I read something over the last week where I was reading a little bit about the Asbury Revival. Some of you reading about it, watching it. Some of you went. It's a wonderful thing. Well, I read an article that was wolf-like. And I was reading, hoping that this professor would talk about Asbury in some helpful ways. And instead, in talking about Asbury... She was painting the picture of what was happening there. And then right in the middle of the article, she said that the movement was too Caucasian and hetero. And that she wondered what it was like for queer people to come into that Asbury 
revival and then took it in a whole direction and took it from the face of Jesus, from the gospel, from repentance, from the kingdom to a side discussion. And that grieved me. Amen? I'm trying to make this concrete here because I think we have to be watchful. You have to be watchful. Now, as I read, I said, I hope that queer people, gays and lesbians, people struggling with same-sex attraction, come to the Asbury Revival and experience the love and power of God and can be changed like the rest of us. Amen? But the tone and tenor of this was indicative. She was shifting the conversation into an unhelpful way. And friends, I'm lingering with this for a moment because this is going to be a challenge for us in the coming days. Liam and I were talking about this this morning. To be a church that says this because we're part of the vineyard movement, we are welcoming and not affirming, is going to be costly. Even for me to say that right now is open to different interpretations. I know that. But we're part of a movement now that is very thoughtfully and kindly and graciously trying to steer and navigate in a crazy culture. How do we welcome everyone? Because Jesus welcomed and welcomes everyone, does he not? There's no sign up out here that says no blank allowed. It says everyone is welcome at all saints. But friends, we're radically welcoming and we're calling people to radical discipleship. And so the cross touches every area of our lives. Whether you identify as hetero or homosexual, whatever walk of life you are working things out, the cross of Christ touches your life and he calls you to take up the cross and to be crucified so that new life can spring forth from your life. Amen? The way of the cross and holiness. Now, some people will say Jesus didn't really address this. But you know what? He did. Jesus addressed this very thing that we're talking about. He says in Matthew 5, 28, he's looking at his disciples and others, and he's saying, in the Old Testament, you were taught that you couldn't commit adultery. But I'm telling you now, in the age of the Spirit, that if you look at someone and lust for them, you've committed adultery in your heart. He's interiorizing and taking it to the heart of everybody. Now, that word in Matthew 5.28, is that just for people, heterosexual or homosexual, or does that include everybody? What do you think? That word touches on every human being. Don't look at someone with lust. Look at them with respect and honor. Love and respect them. If there's lust there, then it's a lifelong project through the Holy Spirit to be transformed. Amen? Friends, I'm trying to tread carefully and thoughtfully about this, but... The path of discipleship that runs through this church is the same for everybody. So Paul makes this clear. If you're struggling with lust or not telling the truth, lying, stealing, same-sex issues, we all get on the same path. 
and walk the same path of discipleship. Amen? So we're not picking on anybody, but we are taking a stance that may not be popular in the coming days. Welcoming, but not affirming. We welcome everybody. But the truth is, we're not affirming a lustful lifestyle of any kind. We're not. I mean, there's lots of things as we get on that road that we're going to die to. Amen? All right. I didn't plan on spending that much time, but I think as we guard and protect one another, that's going to be a conversation that we have. And the antidote, Paul lays it out. Verse 28, verse 30, verse 31 is the gospel of grace, the gospel of the kingdom. Keeping people in community. And friends, there are savage wolves that will come in the coming days and they'll try to separate you from the church. We're seeing a lot of that happen right now across the country. That's one thing Paul says. They try to attract youth to their self, to themselves in a personality cult by listening to their teaching. And so the antidote is to get into the word of God, the whole counsel of God, the gospel of God's grace from Genesis to Revelation, and to try to our best to be faithful and follow Jesus and let him go to work on us. Amen? Why don't we stand? The last thing is Paul talks about financial integrity in verses 31 through the end. He talks about working with his own hands, not having love of money, and then he calls the church to be generous, to give. And he says, it is more blessed to give than receive, than to receive. A quote from Jesus that we don't find in the Gospels. How's everybody doing? I want to say this. We fear the great shepherd, right? With healthy reverence and fear because he's mighty and he's powerful and he protects his sheep. We don't, we don't fear wolves, do we? The perfect love drives out the fear. So we don't walk in fear, even those few things that I mentioned. We, have, we don't have any fear at all because Jesus will see to it. He's a great leader. He'll protect us. We'll watch over one another. And he'll help us be faithful to his word in the coming days. So, Lord, we do thank you for your word and we ask for grace, for power, for anointing, for your mercy. Even ask in the coming days that you would fill this church with people from the margins and teach us how to love and serve them and speak the truth to one another in your name. Amen.